The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to our Bloomberg television and radio audiences. I'm standing by with a very special interview, an exclusive with James Gorman, the executive chairman of Morgan Stanley, recently stepped down from his post as CEO. And this is the first interview in your new role as executive chairman. What's your most urgent priority? Oh, well, it was obviously to come and do this interview with you is my first <laughs> priority. Um, you know, it's, it's to support Ted, and uh, he's a terrific guy, will be a great CEO, um, and my job really is to help him as best as I can, uh, but stay out of the road. So uh, that's, that's really my priority. It's interesting. I've heard you used to write a uh, handwrite, a checklist of priorities at the start of every year. If you think about how you change gears into <laughs> executive chairman, what does that checklist this year look like? It, I didn't write it this year. Uh, I did that when I was CEO for 14 years and it gave me a framework for focusing on a few big things that matter because in these jobs um, there are thousands, literally thousands of issues that come at you and you can easily lose sight of the stuff that actually matters which is a few big things. So every year I would tee up on the first day I came into the office, which was yesterday I came in, um, and write down the list of 10 things. And you know, one of them uh, was always no new mistakes, which I defined as things that cost us more than half a billion of capital. Um, sometimes they were personal, like stay fit or get fit, or uh, sometimes they were about development and leadership with our top team. But no, different jobs, so different. You've got, you've got to switch, so that's what I've done. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up mistakes because mm -hmm. to the extent that we learn from life's challenges, I'm curious about your single moment. What is the biggest mistake you ever thought you've made at Morgan Stanley? You know, this is an exit interview. It's the chance to look back at the last decade or so. You know, I, <clears throat> it might sound immodest. I don't think we made a lot of big mistakes. I mean, the, um, if, if you look at the major things that we did, whether they were the deals, Smith Barney, E-Trade, Eaton Vance, um, Succession, which is critical, uh, navigating through COVID, you know, we got, we got, frankly, most of the big stuff right. I wish we hadn't sold Van Campen when we sold it to uh, Marty Flanagan and Invesco. So that was something I think it took a little too long to get the full team that I wanted in place in the right jobs. Um, but, the, you know, you can't do these jobs and not make mistakes. When I see a mistake, I embrace it. You know, it's like Kipling. You're, you're those, those travellers of success and failure, you've got to embrace them both. Because if you're not making mistakes, the chances are you're not doing enough. So I never see a mistake as a negative. I just see it as something you learn from and move forward. You know, it's interesting. You're standing on top of a mountain now. You've had a tremendous amount of success at Morgan Stanley, but those first couple of years were rocky. Were you ever worried in those first few years you'd be ousted <clears throat> before you can enact a turnaround? No. <laughs> you know, I just thought, listen, what I felt back then, um, we had to act and we had to act aggressively. And I knew that whatever we chose to do, there would be critics. That didn't bother me one little bit.
because we were in trouble as it was. So my job was to do something about it, not listen to the critics of what we can't do, but figure out what we can do. So I was highly confident that we'd make choices and I thought they'd pay off. I thought the rebalancing of the business model was the right choice. So I didn't, I just didn't listen to the critics. It's funny, you kind of got Morgan Stanley at rock bottom, if you will, but a lot of investors think Ted Pick's job is even harder because he is on a high note. What do you think Ted's biggest challenge is going to be? Oh, I don't, th I don't think it's harder or easier. They're just different. You go through different cycles. I mean, the Morgan Stanley I've had for the last five years is very different from the first five or the middle, middle four. Um, you know, for Ted, he's got one of the biggest and, and most successful companies in the world. Uh, phenomenal brand. He's a great culture carrier, so I'm sure the culture will stay in track. The real choices will be strategic. So when opportunities come to move left or move right, how do you do that? How aggressively do, do you do it? And when do you do it? So that's, they're really the choices. And in the first year, while I'm here, I'll obviously um, share with him whatever, you know, uh, views I have on stuff if he wants that. But in the later years, he'll have his team working with him on that. So I'm, I'm confident about that. We'll talk more about strategy in a second. But another thing, as you transition to executive chairman, you have roles mm -hmm. now outside of the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and succession is arguably one of the most important things you could do as a manager. And a big new responsibility for you is serving on the board of Disney, ironically, where succession has been one of the biggest issues. How does Disney live past Bob Iger? Well, firstly, I mean, Bob Iger is a phenomenal executive. I mean, he is. Uh, iconic for a reason. He's led that company uh, through so many cycles and uh, really is a gifted leader. So it's a great pleasure to work with him, but it's not for me to judge Disney's future. I haven't joined the board yet. I'm starting, uh, I think, February 4th or February 2nd, I'm sure, early February. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I like uh, dealing with complex situations. Uh, the changes going on in that industry are profound. And there are choices to be made. So that, to me, is very interesting. And obviously, given the experience I've had leading succession with our board here, with Dennis Nally, the head of our comp committee, and Tom Gloser, the head uh, lead director, um, you know, hopefully I can add something to the succession committee that I'll be joining. What about uh, pressing challenges outside of succession at Disney? Do you think that there's anything that could be immediately addressed mm -hmm. as they contend with activists? Well, you know, there, there are always, we had, we've had, uh, how many activists do we have here? We had at least two, and I think they each had two bites of the apple. Um, so, no, that, that is not what the focus should be on. The focus should be on strategic choices companies make. But again, I haven't joined the board, so I can't, I can't talk about a company I'm not even uh, an insider on. That wouldn't be fair to the team. More on strategic decisions at Morgan Stanley. One massive question. You've built this massive wealth management business, mostly in the United States. You have talked previously about the idea of Morgan Stanley inter internationally expanding more. Do you think Morgan Stanley, though, can be a giant international wealth manager? Oh, sure. There are a lot of wealthy people in this world. I think population just tipped 8 billion. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've just come back from a long trip through Asia, through uh, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, and I was in Europe uh, last week. I've been all over. The there are plenty of pockets of opportunity. So it's a question of, of where, you, where you pick your shots. I mean, where you pick your spots. There are, there are endless opportunities. And I think our Asia business, we have a wealth business in Asia. It's small-ish. Uh, but growing very fast. Um, obviously, that's a focus. Japan, I think, with our partner, MUFG, is a tremendous focus that I suspect Ted and the team will do even more with, which he's already started doing on the trading side. 
Um, so there are endless opportunities. I'm, I'm not worried about what that. What are the biggest challenges with China in particular, given the rising geopolitical tensions and the state of the economy there? Well, China has, you know, China has some fundamental challenges. First and foremost is demographics. Um, the one-child policy guaranteed the population's going to shrink. And right when you need more productive working people coming through to support the older generation, uh, they've got fewer of them and they don't have good immigration. So I think China has some profound challenges on demographics. It has profound challenges in terms of building a consumption economy. Um, you know, there's still an export savings-driven economy. So, I, but on the other hand, China's 1.4 billion people, uh, second largest economy in the world uh, and gross domestic product. It's, it's a key factor in global economic health. So beyond Asia expansion, if you think about the wealth management space, even in the U.S., there's another thing that's happening that a lot of financial advisors are thinking about in particular, and that is the approval, actually, or the lack thereof, of a Bitcoin spot ETF in the United States. When you think about what wealthy clients invest in, when you think about the future of wealth management, do you think Bitcoin is a suitable investment? I've, I've never been, um, you know, I've, I've never really understood the value of Bitcoin as a form of stored value. Um, others have, and others have made a lot of money on it. I joked once, I wish I bought it at $60, and I'm glad I didn't buy it at 60000 it's clearly speculative. I think it should play for wealthy people a very small role in their financial uh, fabric because it's so speculative, it's so volatile. And again, it's going through enormous regulatory change and industry disruption that we've seen with some classic failures of late. So listen, Bitcoin's not going away. It's not a fad. Um, I just don't think it's a core investment. I think it's a, a speculative asset of which there are plenty of choices. Speaking of regulation, you've been very vocal about the new regulations being made in the United States about bank capital, sure. about operational risk. Do you believe the rules are likely to change before implementation based on your recent discussions with regulators? And what do you think they will look like at the end? Oh, they'll definitely change. I mean, they put out an extended comment period which got extended further. Uh, there have been thousands of comments put into the various regulatory bodies uh, led by the Fed. Um, it was it was a proposal that I would say uh, was extremely aggressive and set a marker. Um, it will not go through in that form. If it did, uh, I think it would have very, very negative consequences for corporate lending across this country, which is not what you want. It's not going to help the economy grow. Well, you've also spoken about the Treasury market potential impacts from these regulations. Sure. We've already seen stresses of late in the Treasury market. Do you have fears that those stresses will be exacerbated? I can't tell until I see the actual rules, but all I know is what was put out is highly, highly, highly unlikely to be what is ultimately regulated. Now, investors don't necessarily see that or agree with it, but in my experience, I've been in this a long time. I was on the Fed board for six years in New York. I chaired the FAC in Washington. Um, I think this is a highly aggressive proposal that will be materially wound back when it finally becomes law or regulation. Now there has been tighter capital rules proposed under the Biden administration. There's also been a lot of regulatory actions taken against banks. If the Republicans take the White House in 2024, uh, whether it's Donald Trump or another contender, do you expect that this tighter regulatory environment will just fully unwind? 
It's too, it's too hard to predict. I, you know, I think we're in, you know, you, you see pendulum swing and we swung to lighter regulation to, I think, an excessive proposal. I think it'll swing back. So it's heading back to more balanced regulation. And that's where it should be. I'm, I'm all about balance. I the banking system should not be deregulated. That would be a nightmare. On the other hand, if you overregulate and you require capital standards that are so high that the banks are uninvestable, they can't grow. That doesn't serve communities well. You need prosperous, thriving banks to provide lending products for small businesses and consumers. You know, to the extent we're less than a year away, from a spate of bank failures to the extent that there are still fragilities in the financial system, what are they? I don't think there are a spate of failures, honestly. I think there were three banks that got it wrong. Um, I've said that publicly. They, they made choices that were the wrong choices. It wasn't complicated. They got washed up and, and cleaned up and folded into other banks and you move on. This wasn't, people kept telling me we're having a banking crisis. I said, no, we're not. We had a crisis among three banks. It was a crisis for their shareholders and their employees. It's not a crisis for the market. The core banking system is in, in rude good health, to use a British expression. Well, you know, it's not just the banking system. If you think about the hedge fund industry, regulators are also very concerned about some fragilities there. It wasn't too long ago that Morgan Stanley lost almost a billion dollars in the wake of the collapse of Archegos. Do you think that there needs to be more safeguards on the non-bank system? I mean, that's, it's, honestly, it's, there's, there's too many participants in the non-bank system to say yes or no. You'd have to go subset by subset. Are we talking about payments? Are we talking about uh, private credit? Are we, you know, go, th go through each of the pieces of it. But um, there are always risks when you're dealing with leverage in a financial system. But if you don't have leverage, you don't have lending. So it's a balance. Again, I'm always back to there is a balanced solution to most of these debates. And you can find it with thoughtful discussion with regulators. Speaking of leverage, the cost of leverage is higher today than it was a couple of years ago. Where do you think interest rates go headed into the end of the year? And what do you think the market starts to look like through 2024? They go down. <laughs> As simple as that. Yeah. How far down? I've got no idea. I mean, I thought that it's unlikely the Fed would cut rates this year, but inflation has moved down pretty materially quickly, that it's now become more likely. So first half of the year, I suspect nothing. Back half of the year, they could easily move a couple of, they could move a couple of times. But, but the, they... the key point is, we started this journey mm -hmm. with inflation at 10%, rates at zero, unemployment at 3.5%. And my objective was to get us to 4, 4, and 4. 4% inflation, 4% rates, 4% unemployment. We're about 3% inflation, we're 5%, 5 55 in rates, and we're about 35 in unemployment. So rates will come down. Do you think the economy's in an all clear when it looks like a, a soft landing versus a hard landing? Do you think that the economy will survive this year in good shape? The economy's fine. I mean, there's, there's this obsession with the R word, recession. I mean, you have recessions. They come and go when you get imbalances between unemployment rates and economic growth. So, no, the, the economy is doing fine. Um, I personally think it is unlikely we'll have a recession. Very unlikely we'll have a hard landing. But we'll see. But the odds are clearly in favour of soft landing. I think the Fed's done a great job. Now, for you, hmm. you've told me before that you would look to teach in your post-life at Morgan Stanley, and your life after Morgan Stanley. I want to ask you about that for a moment, because there is a lot of turmoil on college campuses these days. <clears throat> Do you think you'd ever take a bigger role at a university, given all the political pressures and donor activism that you're seeing? Well, I'm joining. Uh, I have been the chair of Columbia Business School for many years, several with Henry Kravis as my co-chair, and now uh, 
chair of the school. I'm uh, looking to get more involved at Columbia University uh, in the coming months, and I, I think that would be great to do. I think, you know, the, the importance of high-quality education for a well-functioning society is profound. It's obvious. So, yeah, I want to be part of that. And, and obviously, universities, it's, this is not the first time universities have been hotbeds of dissent and turmoil. Uh, my whole life they've been that, from when I went to university in Australia in the 1970s. So that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Um, but it's important that people are able to have dialogue and discussion on campus uh, without intimidation and expressing their rights for free speech. What is the next big ambition for James Gorman? You mean today or? <laughs> no, I, I um, internally at Morgan Stanley is to help TED and to help with our clients around the world. I have a, a, a very large client network that I've built up over a long career and I think I can help our bankers and and others in that regard. Um, for me personally, it's to live in a little bit of a world of unknown. For my whole life, I've kind of known what the next steps are. As you mentioned, I've, I've joined one public company, will be joining one public company board, Disney. I'll be getting more involved at Columbia University uh, in the months ahead. And then I'll take it from there. So I don't, I, you know, I want, I want balance in my life. Uh, I've loved being CEO. It's a phenomenal uh, company. I'm so proud of it. my colleagues here. Uh, the job that they've done. This isn't a one-person show. It's thousands of people who are really talented doing the right thing. And ultimately, it's the values of the organization, which is what drives it. So that's, that's what I'm most proud of. And for me personally, um, we'll find out. Well, James, thank you for your time, your sure. first interview in your new role. Uh, that's James Gorman, executive chairman now of Morgan Stanley for Bloomberg Television and Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.